need a bigger boat. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Life, uh, finds a way. Welcome back to Spielberg Chronologically. This is the podcast for myself, Jeff, and my partner in crime, Eric. Eric, you. How's it going? We go through every single one of Steven Spielberg's movies in chronological order, and on occasion, we just throw random things in. Not really random, but I mean, we did Poltergeist for good reason. Side Side project. Side project. I mean, side projects or, or, or interesting milestones that were not necessarily full Steven Spielberg Fun. films. Full transparency. I really just didn't even have this on my list. Um, and yet Eric has swayed me into watching this movie. Uh, it, it Mostly because there is a, what would you say, a 20-minute, 30-minute short. I think it's even shorter than that. I think it's like 20 minutes. It's like 20 uh, Directed minutes, yeah. by uh, Steven Spielberg, so... He felt obligated, and I, you know, okay, fine. Well, I think I think more than that, I think that this film holds a an interesting place in Spielberg's filmography, uh, because of all the things that happened around this mm-hmm. film. I think that even though this isn't like strictly a Steven Spielberg film, I think it is a formidable film you know like a a a film that may have changed the way he makes films in some ways oh is it not endangering actors i think that is it yeah no and i think i think that's an important note you know like up until now we've been like laughing our asses off at some of the stunts that he's pulled off in these movies and uh you know time after time film after film We've seen, you know, ridiculous things that we were like, how did this guy survive this? How did this guy survive this? And after... But at least I I assume that a lot of them were stuntmen. Oh, one would think so. Yeah. They didn't duel. Not really, though. So I don't know. And the stunts were carefully planned and so on and so forth. Like, yeah, I I don't don't necessarily think that it was like just abject irresponsibility. But in in the making of this film, some people did act with abject irresponsibility. And I think it was probably a wake-up call for, you know, Spielberg in particular and the film industry in general. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot to contend with in this film. I also think that it's an it, it's, it's just an interesting film, you know? It is. I, I It is. I, I, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't disagree. I I guess we should get into it. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you first before we get started. What What's your history with this movie? Because you were not enthusiastic about watching this. And so I'm, I'm interested in knowing like your, your, well, what you're coming into this with. I, I've seen it before in its entirety. I can't remember like their full, like the third segment. I really didn't remember much about, um, and the, the fourth segment I remembered pretty well, but it, I didn't, re- I remember the first little sort of teaser with Dan Aykroyd, but I didn't remember that it was Dan Aykroyd. Um, so I, 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 I have a passing familiarity. 
I remember the monster being scary on the plane, and I guess that's about it. I mean, how about you? Yeah, so I uh, I read the novelization a lot as a kid. Like a they lot of novelized these movies, this. I novelized everything. And down the yeah. street from me, there was a pharmacy. And whenever there was I a love, movie, I would go down there and I'd pick up the novelization, even if I, I couldn't love see the movie. That so much yeah. that you read the novelizations as a kid. That's your way of catching the movie. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I did when we get to Temple of Doom too. That was a big one for me. I read Temple of Doom like a million times. Had never seen the movie, but I knew it inside out because I read the book so many times. Um, so fun. So so yeah, I read the book a lot. I I saw this film. I had it taped off a of television, and I watched it uh, several times taped off a of television. Um, interestingly, the Spielberg segment was my favorite when I was a kid. Uh, oh. I know we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, but it was interesting watching it now. I, I'm sure I've seen it as an adult, like in its uncut form. But this is, I guess, the television version is burned into my head uh, because yeah. that third segment, which I also was like straining to remember, like the other three, I just right off the bat knew. But yeah. I, I went into that third Same. segment. I saw her driving in the car. And I was like, "What's going to happen with her? What's going to happen?" I totally with her? Like, was like, I, "I thought this one was about a kid." A kid, and then, yeah. And then yep. when it got into it, I kind of remembered it. But there were scenes, and then the guy from Gremlins is there. <laughs> there were scenes from that movie. Uh, from that segment that I don't remember seeing at all. And so I was kind of like, what the hell? Like <laughs> some of that stuff. So, so we'll I get to we that. I say so, for those unaware that this movie is four short stories in one film. So, and each story doesn't really connect to the other. Yeah. Um, and it was directed that's by. When so when we're saying segments, that's an individual standalone story. Yeah. There's a bit of a wraparound. And then there are four segments directed by individual directors. So John Landis did the first one. Spielberg did the second. Joe Dante did the third. And George Miller, uh, hero, road warrior. Of the film. Uh, yeah. Hero of the film. Exactly. Did the last one. So <sighs> I thought. Well, I, I, I'm ready to gush about the fourth segment but we'll we'll, we'll get we there. gotta go in order um. and, and, and and of course there's also the history to contend with so uh yeah i texted you this morning like my proposed way because there's a lot of ways i have conversations can kind of like overlap and we can like get off the rails really quickly and so i i feel like in order to kind of have professional some structure me i just the turn the mic on and start talking into it <laughs> I, I i i'm forgoing the usual format i didn't write questions for you but i did kind of oh. i did kind of write this well there's too much there's just too much yeah that's fine okay uh i did kind of write this structure for our conversation i thought first off it, it would be good to kick it off by just kind of talking about the prologue, the the Dan Aykroyd, Albert Brooks piece. I love it. I love this. I don't know why I love it so much, but it maybe it's because it's Dan Aykroyd and I love Dan Aykroyd, but that he couldn't save 1941. But it's these two guys. And I'm not familiar. You've got it written down as Brooks. Uh, should I know him from somewhere? Yeah, man, that is Albert Brooks. That is the voice of Nemo's dad in Finding Nemo. He is oh, a, he, a very, uh, I, I would call him maybe like a famous underground comic actor and director and writer. Um, I'm seeing a picture of him today and he looks much more familiar. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and they're driving along. And I guess one of them's a hitchhiker. 
some sort of um, rideshare situation. It's clear that they yeah, they, don't they don't know each other well, but they're getting along well, right? They're having a good time. <laughs> yeah. And so Briggs is like, you want to do something scary? And he turns off the lights. I thought about us parroting the scene for an opening. Um, but uh, they, uh, you know, he's like, turns off the lights while he's driving and see how long, see who gets scared first. And, you know, and they sing songs and... There's a tape that gets eaten, and uh, eventually, Ackroyd's like, "You want to see something really scary?" And they pull. He's like, "Pull over," and he turns around and and comes like faces away from Brooks, and then turns back and looks at him. He's got a full like vampire-y zombie makeup on, and then he attacks and kills Brooks just randomly. Just eats him. Just eats yeah. him. <laughs> It's ridiculous, and then <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's great. Like it's really special. The, the fantastic, uh, like camaraderie between the two. You know, just the chemistry between the two as they're driving along and they're playing "Name That Tune." You know, because the radio breaks, and uh, you know, you can tell they're just like really simpatico. You know, like these are two guys that that maybe just met, but could be buddies. You know, for yeah. like a really long time, if the one of them didn't just freaking eat Kill the, the other. other one yeah and, and Ackroyd's like y- yucking it up like just playing it up to are you sure it's really scary it it's awesome um and it's it's such a great way to open the film to kind of set the tone that that it's better than half of the film to be honest um and then we get the the classic Twilight Zone music and our narrator Burgess Meredith Right, Burgess uh, Meredith, who I, I didn't place immediately, but then I looked it up and I was like, oh, this is a great pick. Because Burgess yeah. Meredith starred in some of the like the most iconic episodes of the original Twilight Zone. Um, in particular, the one the guys even discuss the episode and name drop Burgess Meredith in the yeah. opening. <laughs> in the glasses one. The one yeah. with the glasses where he, where he just wants to be left alone to read. And then there's a nuclear war or whatever, and everybody's killed, and he's like down in a basement or something with all the books, and his glasses break, and then he's yeah. like screwed. Um, and so he's replacing Rod Sterling, uh, who of course had passed away by this point, who was the original voice of Twilight Zone. Um, yes, and, and again, it is if you don't know Burgess Meredith, he's Rocky's boxing coach. Yeah, um, uh, Mick, but he doesn't. He's not doing his Mick voice in this at all. He's no. a very, really nice tonality to his voice, and uh, pulling off the Rod Sterling like pretty, pretty. He's got a richness and like I don't know. He seems more friendly than like. There's something about Rod Sterling that was ominous. Yes, agreed. And when Burgess Meredith is doing his his lines, it sounds like he's telling you a bedtime story. Um, even though some of these stories are terrifying uh that you know he kind of that lead in is at least like sort of i guess bedtime story is the best way to describe it yeah so as, just as a quick aside did have you watched any of the other incarnations of twilight zone like did you watch the 80s series or did you watch the jordan peele one a couple of years ago they had like two seasons of it i i'll be honest i think this movie and a couple episodes of the original is about all i've seen okay cool 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 just just trying to get a point i was of a hitchcock uh presents guy oh hell um, yeah so i mean 
of my anthology shows, that was the one I chose. But Are you old enough to remember that golden period in the 80s uh, where Sunday nights was amazing stories and then Alfred Hitchcock presents just like a one-two punch? Uh, that rings a bell. I did love amazing stories. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic. It was probably about a year they showed those two back to back, you know, and they were all new episodes. Um, yeah, it's like the closest thing we have now is Black Mirror, but which is awesome. That show, but yeah, it, it's it's it, the thing with and we'll find out with this movie. It actually kind of captures what the pros and cons of an anthology series are and that it's hit or miss it's a grab bag well that was just what i was going to point out with the jordan peele series is it's about 50 50 you know like like some of the episodes are just stellar some of them are kind of like uh i don't want to call them smarmy but like treacly like too much sentiment going on yeah Um, oh some of them Mm. are just a gut sounds familiar yeah All right, so we agree we like the prologue, so let's get into the the first segment, the Vic Morrow segment. And let's just, before we get into what happened, which, you know, we're going to have to address. Yeah. Let's just talk about the segment itself and and what happens Ignoring in the all segment. else. Ignoring all else. Even though I'm watching this, knowing it's Vic Morrow's last role. You got to set it aside. I, you got to set it aside. I, I'm setting it aside. Vic Morrow is really good. He is super believable as the amazingly the racist severely racist so this is something that i've had to talk about on other shows it's like if you're if you have so like old hitchcock movies have racism but it's not portrayed as a problem right and that's where this movie is like vic morrow says the n word and then about every slur for every uh, you know, background, eth- what's the word I'm looking ethnicity, for? Ethnicity, yeah. Ethnicity, background, that you can in the opening scene. And, but it doesn't bother me because he's the villain. He's portrayed as the bad guy. He, this is bad. And he's even um, ballsy enough to say it, the N-word, several times, even though the table right next to them is filled with African Americans. Yeah, who confront him about it? It's like, hey man, they're, they're, and they're and very they're like cool. Like they're like they're, not as a like like they're pretty cool about like, dude, like we're right here, we're right here. Wanna, like be cool, yeah. you know. And he just like doubles down, and and it, it's interesting because like like you said, the performance is really really good because like you know this guy, you know, like yeah. you're seeing this he guy, just, and you're like, oh, I know this guy. You know, and, and and there's nothing in the world that is going to change this guy, you know? Yeah, so a, a Jewish co-worker of his got a promotion over him, and that starts him on, on the Jewish people. And then he quickly changes to uh, Asians and African Americans and just starts throwing everyone under the bus. Um, and you know what the problem opposed- is with America? You know, like he goes down that road. I'm an American, even though... Everyone else is an American that he's talking about too. Yeah, he wants to claim Americanism uh, for himself and people just like him, and that's all. <laughs> right. Even though you know the Native Americans were here first, we're really Europeans infringing on this land. Um. Yeah. Anyway, but so he goes outside after being confronted again, and even after, like this is what I don't get because <laughs> even after. 
that Vic Morrow leaves the bar, the the other um, African American guys are like, "What's wrong with your friend?" And they're like, "Nice to these other two guys who are sitting here yucking it up, tolerating, and even laughing about the racism coming out of his mouth." I was just like, "These guys are as maybe not as big of a problem, but they're tolerating it, and they're sitting there. These are the guys." Who go? I'm not racist. Oh, the buddies, the buddies. You mean, yeah, the buddies, yeah, the buddies who aren't actually friends. saying it, but are sitting there putting up Ra- with it. Oh, I'm not racist. Well, you, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because I'm sure that you've had similar experiences to me as 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 a white man in America. I would never in a million billion years, and and this is something that I used to say more, and you kind of have to say it less these days because these days racism is just right out in the open. Like people, right. people have gone like you know, a hundred years backwards and are just like, let me just flagrantly share my hideous views. Uh, but when I, when I was younger, like there, there's this thing where when it can rear its head at very unexpected times, you get around a group of white people and it's only white people. Somebody's going to feel comfortable enough to start espousing their views you know, and and throwing around oh, yeah. slurs and so on and so forth, and and so then you you are in this situation, uh, probably. I mean, what these guys are in, I guess. Yeah. But it seems more like they agree with them. But you're in the situation where you're like, am I gonna like stand up to this guy and be like, hey, shut the hell up, <laughs> you know, or or you know, like who around me agrees with this guy? You could get in some like really. Mm-hmm. uncomfortable situations because these people feel comfortable enough to start, you know, and it, it always like hits me like, Oh, like very unexpected, you know, when I'm with a group of people and somebody just starts in and you're like, God damn, like I wasn't expecting yeah, that. I, it's certainly when I was younger, I probably didn't know how to handle that. I remember I had a friend who said racist things and I had a coworker, uh, later that did say things that were pretty racist. And I remember just being kind of passive, like, okay, you know, cause it's just me and him. And I don't know, are you going to beat me up? I don't like there's something scary about someone who's so openly racist to me. Yeah. As I've gotten older, I've, I've learned to navigate it a lot better well and i think i'm better at choosing my friends now oh yeah absolutely and these are not like these are not people that i would consider friends like you said it was like co-workers or you're at a party and some people uh you know like that you don't know real well just start in you know because they just assume that yeah and know. i'm more comfortable with conflict now than i was back then um where i would think i haven't run into it as much because i'm really selective now like i don't uh, like it, it, someone started chiming in. That would pretty much be it for us, you know. Like I mean, we're done. Yeah. Um. And it, I, I just, but I can understand being uncomfortable and not knowing what to do. Yeah. And 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 I think these guys don't care. I think these like guys they, don't care. I I don't yeah. think that these guys are caught off guard by this guy's sudden you know racist tirade. I think that this is just you know. A Tuesday for them. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, this is just how it goes, goes down. Bob going on about being racist. Like that's the thing is, if this situation happened to me, this would be the last time I saw Bob or Vic Morrow or whatever his character's name is. Yeah, absolutely. We'd, we'd be done because it'd be like, listen, man, I can't be around that. I had 
a, a friend I cut off because I was like, I don't want this negativity and racism around me. Oh, I don't want it. Yeah, I have family and, that I've cut off because yeah, I can't. Yeah, it's just like I, I can't have it in my life and I'm never going to see you again. Yeah. And that's just how it goes. Um, so this story kind of gets pretty repetitive pretty quick. He goes out of the bar and essentially goes back in time to Nazi Germany. Right. He steps out where, and he just steps into Nazi Germany. Like, yeah. Like, and you don't, at least in the first part of this, they don't, you don't really see what they're saying, but it, apparently he looks, at least you find out later on, like the minority that is being persecuted in that area era. Right. So when he when he comes out into Nazi Germany, they 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 I think they I know enough German or you can kind of tell. First they ask him if he's British, then they ask him if he's an American. Either way, he's not supposed to be there and they start chasing him around. And I think they're yeah, in occupied France. That's kind of yeah. like the impression that I got was that they were in France. Um but they they really like Nazi up on him, man. Like they chase him into this building and he crawls out on the ledge and the Nazi guys are standing out there like this moment when he's standing up there and being shot at is the moment I can recall the clearest from the the first time I saw the movie. Yeah, they're like playing like they're kind of playing brain. like I'm gonna shoot right outside his right arm. I'm gonna shoot right like they're kinda like mm-hmm. like doing uh almost a circus act, like kind of shooting around. I recently his body. went shooting with a buddy of mine and I can honestly say it's very hard to aim with handguns <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, i uh i was like oh this is really hard so i uh, the missing kind of made sense to me yeah uh and if they so were trying to one way or another he gets away from them he ends up in the in the deep south it looks like maybe in the 50s or so and uh there's some good old boys there including john larroquette uh, uh, right out of nowhere from night court <laughs> right I, I just was like wait what <laughs> and uh they're gonna lynch him and i, I forget the, the the nazis actually shoot him which i wasn't i didn't remember like they, they just yeah. shoot him in the arm or something mm-hmm. and so he's running around with his injured arm and so he gets away from the lynching uh and then he ends up it seems like in vietnam and he is uh, perceived as yeah so we should say in this uh basically the clan shows up and they are going to lynch him. And he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm white. Can't you tell that I'm white? And they can't. So in the context of where he is, they see him as a black man. Um, and so he's being attacked in that way. And then he kicks one of the Klansmen and they set on fire. Oh, I forgot about the burning moment. guys. Yeah, the guys yeah. are setting each other on fire. They're like the guys and, running and around considering. Burning. What we're going to get into, I'm wondering, I wonder how safe this was, like how much precaution they took into that yeah. <laughs> to keep this guy from burning alive. Absolutely. And then, like you said, we jumped to Vietnam where he runs into uh, some American soldiers. Yeah, like a platoon of sh- American soldiers and uh, who killed their own captain, I think. That's then they say, like, we shouldn't have killed our captain. Yeah, that seems to be, yeah, what happened there. Uh so yeah, then they, they they perceive him as a as a Vietnamese soldier and 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 shoot him or sh- try to shoot him or whatever, and he runs away. He ends up back in Nazi Germany, I think, next, right? Yeah, he kind of bounces between these three places. Yeah, and in the end, uh, the Nazis grab him. They slap a Velcro Jewish star on him, and they 
hurl him onto the the, the train and as the yeah. the train is pulling out he sees his two other racist buddies coming out of the bar and he's yelling at them like guys guys it's me i'm on this train help me help me and they don't see him or, or know right. that he is there and the train pulls off and then he uh there's actually very in striking shot of him looking into the faces of the other people on the train and and uh, the way i took it is like seeing their humanity you know yeah and maybe this is the this is the learning moment for him where he finally kind of turns the corner it's the way i i think we were supposed to take it yeah um so i like this ending where he basically pays for his sins now there's another version of this that was written where he sort of becomes more i think uh john landis got a note from the producer from what i read that hey maybe he can be more sympathetic where he kind of learns his lesson and then tries to save these two Vietnamese children. And and that leads us into, yeah, before we even get there, before we get into what happened and why that's not in the movie, I think that that note is bullshit. I don't think that they needed to make this guy sympathetic at all. Yeah. I like, I think from, that would have like kicked the legs out from underneath the segment. Like I hope, I think the whole point is that this guy is going through an almost like biblical retribution Oh, that's the other question I was going to ask, but is, yeah, I think this ending is fine and apparently was the original intended ending, according to John Landis, for what it's worth, what you can believe from him. Um, But that was the question before, again, we were delaying as much as possible, but in this world, there is there a deity that is punishing him? That yeah, it's it's funny because I that if I had written questions, that was going to be my question for you: Is this yeah. guy going through something biblical, a trial of Abraham? Is he, you know, um, and and you know, in some of those biblical trials, people are redeemed, but in many of them, they're just punished. You know, <laughs> like yeah, like Lot turns back and looks and becomes a pillar of salt or whatever. Well, his wife does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lot's wife. Um, so. Yeah, I kind of do think that this guy is being punished by a deity because there's there's no other logical explanation. Nothing in right. nothing in science or even science fiction could explain what is happening Unless to this guy. He's in the matrix right. and the the people the robot overlords running the matrix are you know punishing him. Which that's, which still that's, comes so- down to a deity. Yeah, punishing him you know i mean like like there is definitely a guiding hand taking this guy through these experiences and and that i don't think the point is to teach him a lesson he might learn a lesson along the way but i don't think the point is to teach him a lesson i think the point is just oh screw this guy yeah (laughs) we're gonna put him through the ringer he's done you know and maybe he's in hell Maybe he had a heart attack yeah. in that bar while he was sitting there espousing his shit, and this is what happens to him after he dies. You know, I think there's a number of different ways to interpret it, but yes, I definitely think that there is a higher power at work uh, putting this guy through this experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the reason the other ending. Wait, they wait, did wait, wait, sh- wait, 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 wait. Before we do it. <laughs> Before we do it, <laughs> okay. as it exists, did you find the segment effective? I was too distracted. I I can't I couldn't get out of my brain what 
actually happened on set. Okay. I think it's, I will say it is the third place segment of the film. Agreed. Um, I think we're probably going to rate these exactly the same. We'll go through, I, it, at the, no, we'll go yeah, through it at I, the absolutely. end, but I think we're going to rate them exactly the same. Um, I, I, uh, I saw this as a kid, uh, like I said, well before I knew what happened on set. Like when I was a kid, like I was not aware of the history of making this film and so on and so forth. And so at that time I, I did find it very effective. And I think, uh, on, as an adult, just on a knee jerk level, I found it as like a revenge fantasy, uh, interesting, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and entertaining a way. Like when he got shot, I was like, Oh damn, they shot him, you know, like, so pieces of it kind of, kind of worked for me. But like you, um, I was, I was distracted somewhat, you know, by what happened. So yeah, let's yeah. go, let's go ahead. Okay. So this is Vic Morrow's last role, um, because he was killed on set along with two child actors in a, a scene where a helicopter essentially crashed on top of them. Yeah. So the deal is, is that in, in the structure of the, the film or the segment, uh, when he's in Vietnam, which is the shortest piece, you know, like mm-hmm. as far as he's, when he's bouncing around, when he's in Vietnam, he was supposed to like get away from the army guys, come across a, a village that had been bombed out by the Americans and see two children and he was supposed to pick up the two children because a helicopter was coming in to re i don't know napalm the little village he was supposed to pick them both up under his arms and run away from the helicopter while the helicopter was kind of coming down on them and buildings were blowing up around them during the shot uh the pyrotechnics created and and this is still like Nobody is 100% sure how this right. all worked, but it seems like the pyrotechnics created a updraft of heat underneath the helicopter, which made them lose control of the helicopter. The helicopter came down, and uh, I don't want to get into the graphics of specifically what happened, yeah. killed Vic Morrow and the two children. Most, uh, what I read was presumably quite instantly. Yes. Um, so... Thankfully, I thing, guess at the very least. Now, here's the other thing: important things. <laughs> there are important things about this that. Uh, oh, like the kids being paid under the table. The kids were not supposed to be there, right? The kids were brought in uh, as, as child actors, but there are laws in California uh, about how children actors work. They are not supposed to be on sets after dark. They are supposed to have like specific supervision. Um, they aren't supposed to be involved in like big special effects sequences. You know, there's all these laws about how kids are supposed to work. John Landis broke them all. John Landis broke them all. (laughs) He absolutely did. And he was aware that he was breaking them. In the end, uh, he was pronounced not guilty after like a decade. You know, he was pronounced not guilty. It's crazy. Um, he kind of, to me kind of pushed the blame off on uh the helicopter people and the pyrotechnic people um and and that they didn't establish proper communication with each other and and so on um but he was he was tried for involuntary manslaughter a bunch along with a bunch of other people um and was pronounced not guilty and then uh there was a separate uh trial and i guess he he and a bunch of the producers and stuff settled with the kids families out of court um, but the bottom line is that the kids were on set 
and he had full knowledge of the fact that they weren't supposed to be there. They were being paid under the table. The kid's parents were instructed not to tell anybody, you know, that they were there. Um, which is interesting because you're making a movie. It's going to be right. shown in front of millions of people. And I guess at that point, it's kind of like, uh, oh, the nobody's going to come after us because it's done, you know, or right. or like maybe the thought is that the supervising agencies wouldn't notice that they hadn't been there to supervise these kids or I, I don't know what the thought was. But essentially, so and, and and then in the scope of the story, then the kids were supposed to be with him in Nazi Germany at the end. The German soldiers were supposed to pull the kids off and execute them, which is heinous. And then amazing. And oh then throw gosh. him on the train. And they actually, I guess, filmed those pieces. Uh, and then after the accident, debated whether or not to include them and decided against including the children in the film at all. You know, just gee. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it, it makes I'm not super familiar with John Landis's films. I know his name. Um but boy does it put um a huge pull over the movie but also his career it, well this is something that it, that he's carried with him ever since. Like it's a yeah. stigma and he went on to have a pretty successful career. He was successful before this American Werewolf in London. I love American Werewolf. Me too. London. Me too. Love it. Yeah. Uh he was successful after this coming to America, trading places, Beverly Hills Cop, you know, okay. like, So yeah, I am a fan of his work then. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just... But I have a real hard time with this guy and I've seen interviews with him after this, I mean, even like Michael Jackson's Thriller, that was John Landis, you know, like, yeah. Like, um, and, and I just have a real hard time with how he carried on after this, you know, like, yeah, like, it seems so difficult. So it, it turns out that the other filmmakers had a really hard time with this as well. And, uh, so, so did this happen before the others made their yes, segments? Yes, this was the first so, segment oh film. So they filmed the Ackroyd Brooks piece, then they made this piece, and then the other filmmakers were scheduled to make their pieces. So I think, and, and that's why I chose this this point in our talk to talk about this, because I think it definitely impacted everybody else. Spielberg was very, very upset and unhappy and and was under an obligation, a contract to yeah. make his segment. According to what I read last night, he decided he was just going to knock it out as quickly as possible. He filmed it in six days, didn't want to be there, was like, you know, just... And it shows. Just pra- he just shit it out, you know? Um, Joe Dante, you know, there's not a lot about what happened with him. Um, but George Miller was so disgusted with the whole thing. He filmed his airplane segment and then just refused to participate any further, like in the scoring and the editing and so on. He was just like, screw you guys. I'm out of here. And, and left it to Joe Dante to like finish up his segment as well. So like after the accident, the film was more or less like hot potato. Like people were kind of putting in their pieces that they were contractually obligated to do. But then like I'm out. You know, yeah. I'm just done. One guy had his name 
taken like one of the assistant directors was like just take my name off it completely like he had a pseudonym in there yeah, yeah. he did the alan alan smithy route uh which is yeah. what hollywood it, uses when somebody's like crazy you. like it because there's been deaths on scene but this one just feels so negligent compared to others like you think of brandon lee and you know sometimes shit happens right but then if you had taken every precaution and then shit still happened that's one thing this feels like no precaution full negligence full yeah. negligence like like willful breaking of the rules breaking of the rules to try to get this th- shot landis is screaming into the he- walkie-talkie for the helicopter to get lower you know yeah. and the whole thing goes to crap and, and innocent people are killed uh and yeah it, it really casts a pall over the entire thing and apparently it cast a pall over them and uh as a result of this spielberg had been good friends with landis and cut off just flat out cut this guy out of his life after this uh and never worked with him again um he also made a lot of very public statements about changing the way that he made movies and and how he needed to grow up as a filmmaker and take better responsibility uh he made a lot of statements about how everybody on set has the right to yell cut if they feel like somebody is in danger or safety protocols aren't being followed um so you know which is great and which makes me like the guy even more but and i think going back like we've done there'd be many times whoa 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 whoa, whoa. god god this guy should not be jumping off of the top of this bus right it should be something (laughs) we can't have the snake this close to our lead actor we just i mean so yeah um and that this is the main reason I didn't want to do the film. I didn't want to talk about this. It's so depressing. It is depressing, and, but like like I said at the beginning, I think that this is a a pivotal moment. You know, if we're looking at at Spielberg's career, this is a pivotal moment in his career. This is a changing I, point. I like, agree. This I, is a guy that's especially, coming off of Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark and is riding high. And then this shit thing happens, this hideous, hideous thing yeah. happens in his career, and now he's got to deal with it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, E.T. was the last film that came out before this, the most successful film of all time at the time. And now all right. of a sudden he's associated with this black cloud, you know, uh, uh, you know, people died. No, I think you're totally right, especially with as many times in the past we've been like, wow that was a dangerous stunt and then to have and seeing him as two different actors right the young nothing can go wrong you know when you're young you sort of feel like nothing can go wrong for you and then as you get older you're like oh yeah i can and it's like you said this kind of pivotal moment where it wasn't his fault but i gotta think there's a way they could try to get out of their contracts but i don't know how it works yeah um definitely an eye-opener i mean everybody has moments in their life where they are life hits them upside the head you know you get humbled you get you know you you learn that you're not immortal (laughs) you learn that you can be injured um and and this just feels like that you know for our dude here so uh so yeah, so let's get into his segment, which you know huh. we agree he shit out after. Now, in in <laughs> hindsight, like I didn't know that he filmed his segment chronologically after um, 
the 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 Landis segment. So let's just be honest. This is the worst segment in the film. It feels like ignoring a bad, all else. A like, bad granted, episode of Amazing Stories is what this feels the, like. The first episode, the first segment is probably the worst because of everything around it. But if, ignoring all else, and just from a narrative standpoint, this segment is balls. It is so boring. And again, <clears throat> this is the second reason I didn't want to watch this movie because I remember this being just a suck fest. <laughs> of, I, okay. <laughs> I notice sometimes listening back to our episodes, I get a little sidetracked and I kind of go off on tangents. But I got to say and concede just a little something to you right now. Please. This reminded me so much of Hook. Not in how bad it is, but there's some tone. But it is about how bad it is because it's the same fucking tone and we'll get there we'll get there when we get to hook but you can definitely expect me to circle back around to this when we get to hook because it's the same i have the same problem with hook that i have with this and it's interesting because now maybe you'll see hook in a slightly different light i don't know because i hook has robin williams in the worst performance of his life like it is no so treacly Who? and over Williams? the top oh god yeah no. it's the worst okay okay have you seen insomnia um <laughs> he just whispers that whole movie but it's got hoffman and i don't think you can say hoffman's bad. no no i would i would not say hoffman's and then bad. um help me out super mario um bob hoskins bob hoskins is Smee, who's awesome um and then Rufio. I know you don't like rufio's great there can be good performances in a bad movie dude like Okay, for for sure. Again, we're not talking. We're not reviewing Hook. Yet. <laughs> I agree. There could be good performances in a bad movie, but we are not establishing that that's a bad movie yet. But we're also establishing that Hook is better than this because there is no redeeming value in Kick the Can. No, it, it, it there is very little redeeming value in it. Um, it's 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 problematic racially. <laughs> It is uh, boring. Uh, the it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. the 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 kid performances are not necessarily in line with the adult performances. The I don't know. It's it's just really bad. Like you know, outside of Scatman Carruthers, who is always fun to watch. Um, yeah, he's the bright spot. He's the bright spot. That and his, I don't know if they're veneers or dentures, they are very bright. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it is uh, it is, it is, an ill-advised segment. Apparently, what happened was uh, Spielberg was initially considering doing um, Monsters Have Come to Maple Street, which is mm-hmm. one of the most famous uh, both Rod Searling short stories and Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, after the accident happened... They decided it was going to be too intensive, too much uh, special effects and things like that. And so he pivoted over to this one, which is an adaptation of uh, an earlier Twilight Zone episode as well. Um, I would say that was very ill-advised, you know, like I don't know that it was like you said in as far as putting out the best possible product. Sure. But as a guy who just wants to get the hell out of here. I'm like, yeah, because there's nothing dangerous in this movie. Oh, for sure. There is nothing dangerous going on. But, I mean, here. there's a, a guy hanging out the window late, but 
it's not dangerous. Like this is very much the safest possible call I think Spielberg could make and did make. And I kind of am here for it. Yeah. Um, I, when I was a kid, I found this part charming. You know, like I, I, I enjoyed it as a small child. Um, as an adult, I find it kind of galling and uh, it just gives me the willies. I, 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 yeah. I can't say that I really enjoy it on any level at yeah. all. You're young again. Go play. Okay, I don't want to be young anymore. Okay, you're not. And that's the end of the story. Uh, Kick the Cane is awful. Yeah. It is a big waste of time. It's too and much the, sentiment, too much like sun-drenched, you know, overblown. Yeah. You know, it's just... The, and maybe you need that warm blanket after the last one, but just, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't even succeed in being giving me warm fuzzies. No, it does it's not. It's just boring. It, it does not succeed in any way. Um, initially, the structure of the film was going to have this be the last segment, which would have been like a hideous yeah, call then, to go out yeah, on this one. You know, like exactly. And then you don't get the the wraparound, as you put it. Yeah, with uh, John Lithgow later. Um, so yeah, definitely smart crap this out right here in the middle of the movie and just get it um, over with so the first half of this movie it is pretty much ball city um, except for the the prologue yeah 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 the prologue's excellent um and then finally we actually because when i think of the twilight zone and i think it's probably me not having actually watched them any i think there's always something chilling that needs to be in a twilight zone episode and it just isn't in in that segment, and and maybe it's again I'm conflating Twilight Zone with Hitchcock episodes and stuff like that. But well, again, the question becomes like, who is this guy? You know, like how is this happening? Like, is he just this magical guy? So you know, yeah, he's like an angel that goes from place to place, uh, yeah. and then. I mean, the moral of the story is, even though you're old, you can still enjoy life. You don't have to sit around and wait around to die, I think is the moral of the story. Yeah, I think but that's how many the moral of the story. 80, 90-year-old people are going to this movie. Yeah, so I guess it's supposed to make the younger people feel better about the older people feeling better. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Uh, okay. It's, it's so stupid. Let's move on to segment three. Let's, we, we, something better. Something all right? better. Um, so we agree the dead last, the last segment, in a vacuum is the worst thing about the movie. Oh, for sure. In a vacuum. Yeah. Ignoring all else. Okay. So the next one is, um, I, I've read it. It's like, it's a good life is the name of the segment. Um, and this one starts off, like we said, with a woman driving and ending up at a bar. And she meets the guy from Gremlins. I can't think of his name. You probably know it off the top of your head. I do not. But I. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I just figured you like a big gremlins guy. I am, but I don't uh, know that guy's name. <laughs> yeah, but he's iconic and he's flirting with her. But there's this kid playing an arcade machine and it's not working correctly. He's playing Tempest. He's playing Tempest, yeah. Uh, for those nerds out there like me and a guy who runs a gaming website knows that he's playing Tempest. And he's banging the machine and there's something about it that's affecting the v television that's showing a boxing match? Yeah, something. And I don't know why these guys watching the TV assume that the kid banging on the arcade machine on the other side of the bar is affecting the picture on their sports event. Though I know some pretty, like, this did not seem too far-fetched for me because I remember as a kid, my dad, not knowing how technology works. And now, he, he knows some technology because he installed phone systems for years. 
But on my, we had this Macintosh computer, and my brother changed the desktop to this just this simple pattern. And my dad was like, "Stop doing this! It's taking up all the memory and it's making it run slow." And my brother, who is a technical genius, is like, "Dad, you don't understand." And my dad goes, "Just let me have this, <laughs> <laughs> so I can see like these guys be like, he's messing it up. You can't convince me otherwise." Um, so I, I didn't find it to be too much of a stretch for me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Okay, so the the perception of them is that he's messing it up. So so anyhow, they come to push the kid down because jerks, you know. And yeah, they're grown men and he's what, eight? Eight, yeah. So the kid leaves the bar. At the same time, the woman gets offended that the guys are such jerks and she leaves too. And this leads to another one of these stunt moments. And you actually texted me last night exactly at the moment. Like it was, it was like a miracle exactly at the moment where I was watching this little scene over and over and over again, you texted me an image of this scene and it was like, this is incredible. I watched it. I watched it 10, 15 times. I just kept hitting. I I was like, did they really just put this kid on a bike and hit him with a car? (laughs) Because that's what it looks like. It's very good. It's very good. And I know we're in the the post two kids just died on set. This looked a lot more safe, but it was but still, it still ridiculous. looked like they put the kid on the bike and hit him with a <laughs> yeah. car. Like in E.T., there are scenes where the kids are on the bikes and I'm like, oh, that's an adult in an Elliot hoodie at, in this particular. Yes. Like they they yes. subbed in adults. This really looks like they just put a kid the on a bike and hit him kid. with a car. Hey, you're going to run into that car <laughs> and like... It's going to be moving, it's so awesome. hit it lightly, you know? And it, I, when you watch it on a 15-second loop, it's even better because it, she backs up, she goes, plink, and she goes, shit. And then you just keep watching. <laughs> and when I'm watching it back over and over and over again, I'm like, she, I, in my brain, it's like she keeps running him over. And it's like, shit, I did it again. I don't know. It. I laughed so much. Which yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty excellent. It's so good. So she messes um, up his bike, and he convinces her to take him home. Right. So yeah. she th- she drives out to this house in the middle of nowhere to drop the kid off, and there's all these beat up cars out, which turns out to be important that this place is like surrounded by beat up cars because nobody has left this place in a long time. She gets inside, and it's a creep show inside it's this so house. so visually awesome. The this, house, this... I never, when I was a kid, I never noticed how cool the design on the yeah. house itself is. Like This is artistically my favorite segment. I Just the way it looks and is shot and some of the practical effects later in the segment are so good. And that's, that's the pieces that I didn't remember as a kid with some of those practical effects. But essentially- and I love the story. I love- I didn't like how it ended, but I really love the story and how well it plays out. Yeah. It's really good. So the family is, is you know, like very much, uh, they fawn over this kid. And yeah, like, and he tells you, or, or tells the lead early on, yeah, my parents don't really care. It's my birthday today. No one even notices, you know, no, no one cares. And so you get home and you think these are his parents and they're very attentive and, oh, he's home, Anthony's home. And then the uncle who uh, is played by Kevin McCarthy, who I know from UHF as R.J. Fletcher. Uh, I love 
him. He's just, just in all in, the things. Like that guy's in tons of stuff throughout the But he's RJ Fletcher. Sure, okay. sure, sure, sure. We're gonna watch UHF for this show <laughs> just because it's that's twice now we've with the Indiana Jones parody and it's I love it. You bring it um, up once an episode at least. It's a really good movie. You should watch it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it at the theater when uh, I was a kid. Okay. All right, good. That was I it. was gonna say. Um yeah, so he's in it, and so there's this family. There's an uncle, someone you presume is like a sister, but I don't think so. I don't think she's really his um, sister, no. His real sister's upstairs in one of the great shot, uh, and then is presumably mom and dad, but I think you find out they're almost like foster parents. I think they're just kidnapped. I think they're all just kidnapped. I think he brought them all to this house under false pretenses and was like, you're my mom now. <laughs> you're my dad yeah. now. You're my sister now. You're my uncle. It turns out and then they- that this kid has ultimate power. You know, like like anything that he wishes comes true. And so he's keeping this family trapped in this house to behave as his family and more or less worship him and do whatever he says. Uh and, you know, he's a kid. And so he has weird priorities. Everybody watches cartoons. Everybody has dessert for dinner every night, you know. And they're all so afraid of him because he has ultimate power that they just, like, do whatever he says all the time out of fear that he's going to turn on them like he did his real sister, who's upstairs. And- so they, let's so hold, you're going to speed right into one of the best parts of the movie is... So he's like, okay, they're going to make dinner. I'm going to show you around. And so he shows uh, the character's name is Helen and they go upstairs and this, it changes. There's black and white. So all the TVs are on in the house. All of them are showing cartoons. And on this, once they go into this hallway, it's showing a black and white cartoon and the hallway is black and white. Right. And he's showing her around and it's so beautiful to look at. And then he's like, that's my sister over there. And she's like saying hi. Helen is saying hi to the sister. Oh, she had an accident. She doesn't talk anymore. And the camera shows you her face from her nose up. And then the camera kind of raises and you see that she has no mouth. And it's creepy and awesome. It is creepy and awesome. Did you notice how the cartoons, all the cartoons that were showing kind of reference what's going on in the movie like the, I, certainly with the crows the heckle and jekyll like anything i think can happen look at me i can yeah. turn into whatever i want like yeah like all the cartoons kind of had this weird overtoned uh to to what was actually going on in in the segment um so that leads into like they have the dinner it's gross you know like the, the woman says, you know, you shouldn't be feeding It's all him. desserts. Yeah, and... you shouldn't be feeding him like this all the time. And the kid gets mad at the other people like, you should have told me that. Uh, so then, the, can you blame him? Right, I mean. <laughs> he makes the uncle do a magic trick. Uncle, because the woman's trying to leave at this point. She's creeped out. She's like, I got to get out of here. No, no, wait, Something wait, wait. Something is wrong. Uncle's oh, going to do a, a mo- magic trick. Yeah, before we get to the magic there's a moment that's kind of fleeting, but I think it's really good is they're all sitting down and, and Helen and, and Anthony are watching cartoons and mom comes up behind him. She goes, um, where is the dinner? And he goes, you know where the dinner is. It's in the oven. Oh. And you get the sense that the dinner is is manifested by him. And go get it. It's in the kitchen in the oven. And then she brings it. I loved that moment and it's before you fully know what's happening yeah that that happens and then we get to the the magic trick so 
the uncle's gonna pull a rabbit out of a hat but he doesn't really know that he's gonna pull a rabbit out of a hat like the kid provides him with a hat and he gets up in front of everybody in the family and a spotlight comes out of nowhere and it's a great moment again because the teacher is looking around like trying to figure out where the spotlight's coming from nope just a spotlight well, even it surprises the uncle he's like what well, <laughs> <laughs> so he reaches in the hat and he's really scared and he pulls a rabbit out of the hat and you could see the relief on his face like yeah it's just a rabbit and then i forget what happens but something triggers the kid and then this crazy ass cartoon monstrosity rabbit comes out of the hat and it the, looks incredible it looks so cool like this is one of the the practical effects i think you were referencing and it, oh yeah it's like oh my gosh who made this monster like it, it's really really good yeah uh and, and then it goes from then you kind of get some exposition as i can do what i want and then he makes the tv crack in half and then what sounds like the Tasmanian devil comes out and it's this weird sort of it kind of looks twisted version of it him. It looks like a practical Taz while it's spinning, you know, like, but it's also got no hair on it. Yeah. And it's kind of gross. And then it changes into various other monsters. And then the final one is this like bouncing thing with the eyes poking out and steam going everywhere. It looks so cool. Yeah, um, and we skipped the part where he takes the fake sister and he shoves her into the cartoon, which is pretty, oh, yeah. pretty stellar as well. Like, the effect of yeah. her being in the cartoon isn't particularly well done, but the cartoon itself around her is <laughs> like this nightmarish, hellish vision. Like, she she dared talk back to him or, like, call out that he's a monster. I think she put a note. Uh, the teacher, oh, yeah, the teacher finds a note a in her purse and everybody blames yeah. the sister. So he sends the sister into the cartoon. Yeah, even though it may not have been her. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> the family's like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, it, it's good. And then we kind of get this dreamlike state because, again, he gets angry and he wants every, I hate this house, everything go away. And it's just him and Helen. And he sort, she's sort of is like, I can help you with your powers. I'll take care of you. Which is this weird ending, and they get in the car, and they drive off, and now she is his mother. She's his Jedi master. She's his guru. Like, I kind of got the impression. And she has this idea that she thinks she can control the kid, you know? Or help him learn to control himself. Yeah, like, the ending is shit. So, like... (laughs) like a really strong segment up until that point but i guess it's because she's a teacher and she feels she hadn't had much direction in life it said at the beginning she didn't know what was coming next so she decides she's going to take on this kid and be his mentor or whatever and they're going to travel the world together and she's going to teach him i don't know to be a superhero to be a new jesus who who the hell knows what she has in her mind in my mind i'm thinking get him to sleep and then hit him with a rock like <laughs> or she's maybe sees this as the other thing a little bit darker is like huh this kid's my ticket to fame and fortune or you know right. whatever it's opportunist like he, can, he can just give us a huge house and we can have whatever we want i don't know like i don't think it's a good plan <laughs> like i'd like to see part two where you know because a kid with ultimate power I don't know that you can raise them. No. Because the time when they don't want to do something, as soon as they know, and this kid already knows that I have power over you, 
you lose. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I don't think it ends well for her. No, absolutely not. That's why, that's why I'm saying like, as soon as possible, you're dropping a cinder block on this kid's skull. Like you got to take this fucker out like ASAP. Hit him with the car again. Yeah, something, something. You got to get rid of him because, uh, yeah, trick him into trusting you and then, and then get rid of him because it will not end well for anybody. It won't end well for the world. Like this guy's got to go. Yeah, like a better ending would have been if she Thelma and Louise them, right? You know, and just <laughs> drove off a cliff, and like you're like, wow, what a sacrifice she made for us. So we don't have to deal with this crazy being. Nonetheless, a really good whirlwind of a segment. Yeah, twenty eight, twenty five solid minutes. You know, right yeah, up until the end. Yeah, exactly. Like there's five minutes of this that aren't good, um, but the rest of it's pretty good. But again, I think if if she drives them off a cliff, then it's like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But alas, that's not what happens. And we cut to an airplane in the sky. And and this is this <sighs> is this is the part of the movie that everybody knows and remembers. You know, like this yeah, is this and, is the banger. Yeah. So the original so it's nightmare at twenty thousand feet. And the original stars William Shatner. In a fantastic you, Yes, of course. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh also very good, but this, yeah. I think, just ratchets the whole thing up. There's so many great, like, visual... I have this moment of Lithgow's face in my mind. I love John Lithgow anyway. Um, He's so good in this. So, like, he's in the bathroom of the airplane having... They're flying through a storm, and he's a mess. And, you know, they get him back to his seat. They settle him in, and she's like, do you want some? I'm not supposed to do this, but I have some sedatives. And the the flight attendants are super nice, like way more patient than they'd be today. He'd be duct taping his chair. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so how how are yeah. you with flying? Are you a nervous flyer? I love it. You, oh, you enjoy man. flying because it's like so. Usually when I'm flying, I'm going to Washington State, which is on the other end of the country. I'm in Florida, and it's a five hour flight, and it's five hours where I have no obligations. I get to read, play my Switch. It's five hours. I have, and I've never been on a plane with a crying baby, but even if I did, I got headphones. I'll make it disappear. I love it. Love flying. I am not. I I am more of a John Lithgow. And I, I fly frequently, not not super often, but several times a year. And I, I get up there and go into low-key panic mode. And I remain that way the the entirety of the flight. Nobody looking at me would know that I'm freaking out, but I'm freaking out the entire time. Like, and for me, being in the bathroom is the worst place on the airplane. Like, I hate the airplane bathroom because the whole time I'm in there, I'm thinking there's about four inches of man-made garbage and plastic between me and the abyss right now. And like, I just, it feels cramped and claustrophobic and hideous so when i saw him in the bathroom at the beginning i was like get the hell out of the bathroom man (laughs) like my only thought when i'm in the bathroom on the airplane is what if the airplane starts crashing while i'm in the bathroom and i'm gonna be stuck in here like like it would be realistically any worse than being anywhere else on the airplane when it's crashing but that's the only thing that i can think of while i'm in the bathroom so I strongly relate to John Lithgow in this segment. Like I, I am a nervous flyer. 
you know, and I, like you, I play with my switch. I wear headphones. I watch movies, you know, but the whole time in the back of my head, I'm trying not to think about the plane exploding while I'm on it. Yeah. So I, I think for me, like the first couple times I went, I was kind of like, Ooh, you know, cause I never really flew that much as a kid, but at some point I was just like, you know, if I'm going to go, this would probably be pretty plainless. All right. You know, to me, there's worse things like anything's better than dying slowly, you know, of some sort of terrible disease or you get to avoid Alzheimer's. And you know, like to me, that's how I think I'm like, I, I just put myself in the mind state. Well, if I'm going to go, there's nothing I can do about it. So, OK. And then I just I'm not worried about it anymore because it's. I, I, I've given up all control at that point and there's something freeing for me about that. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful way to be and I'm super jealous. I will never be that way. <laughs> I will never be that way. Like when I was younger, when I was still, you know, immortal, I didn't mind it as much. As I've gotten yeah. older, it's become more and more like the people that are on planes that flip upside down and fall to the ground never think that they're on the plane that's going to flip upside and <laughs> down and fall to the ground. Like that's but that's the way my probably, mind goes, you know. Like nobody's ever do expecting think that. it. So the, what makes me think I'm going to be safe? You know, like so so John Lithgow flipping out, flipping out terribly. There's yeah. a horrible storm. The plane is bouncing around. Now, okay, let me circle back. If I'm flying through a storm like this. I'm not calm and zen, for sure. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, every flight I've been on, there's been a little turbulation, and that's fine, you know, and it's it's fine. I, I've never been on a flight like this, where they're going through a storm. Okay. I certainly would, would not be at peace in that moment. Yeah. But, <laughs> but he's already got flying anxiety, and they're going through a storm. So he looks out on the wing and through it, it, the way this is filmed is so good. It's so good. It's so good because just through all the wind and rain and lightning and crap, you see this thing out there on the wing kind of tearing at the wing and like ripping pieces off and biting them and so on and so forth. And then I think even in that first shot, the lightning lights up and it's sitting on the engine and you get your first clear view of it. And like the lightning hits it and it just loves it. It's like, ah, it's <laughs> a, it, a metal monster. It's like the rock. Like I swear he has an electric guitar on there riding the wing. <laughs> lightning's hitting him. His tendrils are blowing in the wind and you just hear like a nasty lick. Come on. I would have just put it over the top for me. But um, yeah, he's, a, he's, He's loving life, tearing up this plane. He is all about it. So Lithgow, of course, freaks out. And the the way that they handle the other people on the plane, there aren't many characters on the plane, but the ones that are there are stellar. Like there's yeah. there's the big guy in front of him who's like the the FAA security guy. It turns out, and the little girl with the camera is like so perfectly cast as like the irritating kid who is kind of cute but kind of irritating and is in your face yeah. too much when you're freaked out uh just stellar so he's freaking out the the flight attendants keep circling back around to him and i forget how many times he freaks out before they really decide they're going to take him down i think he, like it's a pretty quick segment it's only 20 25 minutes yeah. long 
Um, they're pretty patient with him, though, and one of the flight attendants is quite sympathetic and, you know, tucks him in and says, I'll sit next to you, and he's like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, they really try to take care of him before they have to take him out, you know? Yeah, but eventually, you know, he keeps looking out and seeing things. Nobody else sees it. He flips out, and they're like, okay, we got it. We got to do something with this So guy. that's what this, like, awesome visual he... He sits there and he opens the window and the monster's face is just right up on the window and it's a hideous looking monster. It looks great. And they cut to his face and they do like this brief moment where you have to rewind it a couple times where his eyes bug out almost like um, do what's the character from Roger Rabbit at the end? Christopher Lloyd's character. Right. Yeah. 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 Doom. Uh, Judge Doom. Bug, Judge Doom bugs out and then it cuts to him getting up yelling and the camera is like even with his face so it has this awesome like surreal zoom out moment and it looks so good and then they grab him and Lithgow's face is nightmarish in like his sort of mania he is in and it they capture him and time down and it's great he now how does he get back up to oh he gets the gun he gets right? the gun he's he's so the the FAA guy is wrestling around with him and he has a, a gun holstered on his ankle and Lithgow gets the gun and rushes uh over to the window and it's like if nobody else is going to do anything i'm going to take this thing out and i think first before that he's trying to break the window with the oxygen tank that broke free right and right. then he gets the- and he even says at one point in the movie he's not as worried about himself as everyone else on the plane right yeah like there's this point where he breaks and i think that's when he opens the window and, and you know he breaks at this point and it's just I'm taking this thing out. Yeah. And I don't care if I die to do it. I'm, I'm, this thing's got to go. Everyone else is going to be safe. And that's what he does. He, does. <laughs> he shoots out the window. The cabin he decompresses. He gets sucked halfway, halfway out the window. The FAA guy's trying to hold him in the window. He's out there like busting shots out at the wing, like trying to shoot the thing. Everybody yeah. in, inside the cabin's going nuts. Stuff is flying all over the place, you know, and the plane is like bouncing all over. Like it was already on the verge of like not making it because the thing is taking out so far two of the four engines on the plane. And uh, the thing comes over and takes the gun and I think it bites off part of the gun. Yeah, like, it, <laughs> it shocks Luke. I was like, and I almost feel like the monsters like, like once they get out of the clouds, the monster looks down, the clouds clear and you can see the runway and the monster's like, time's up. And almost like, sort of is like, this guy's got balls. Yeah. I like this The monster guy. was like, almost, this was a good one. <laughs> like, even though I didn't, kill anyone on this flight this was a lot of fun it's almost like you've seen dirty rotten scoundrels yeah at the end of the movie where she's like i've i've taken a lot of people for a lot more but i had way more fun scamming you guys and that's what this is that he's like all right and he flies off into the night because it can fly and goes to on to terrorize someone else so they get it's very good it is very very good. good it is very good it's very effective it's very like 
dizzying and claustrophobic and you know just filmed in such a way that it puts you really off kilter and as somebody who has like you know problems with planes and motion and so on i'm watching it on the edge of my seat like kind of like bobbling around like oh my god like it it very much worked for me i can't even imagine seeing this in a theater it would have like melted my brain um they get down to the ground bottom line the plane lands everybody's safe a crew comes out at this point people on the plane still think lithgow is just nuts they're like he's out of his mind like they've got him strapped in a gurney they're throwing him in the back of a ambulance crew comes out to take a look at the plane uh, because they say, okay, one of the engines out. We're, we're kind of worried about the other one. We need you guys to look at it, see if any fuel is leaking. And they come around to the side of the engine, and there it is. The engine is just torn to crap. There are, like, claw marks in it. There's stuff sticking out everywhere. Because the, the well, they were up there, the thing was, like, ripping off hunks of metal and throwing them into the front of the engine. <laughs> like, oh, blow. he's good. So he's good. good. So good. Uh, so Lithgow... Of course, then to, to wrap the whole thing up, he's in the ambulance, turns around, the ambulance driver is Dan Aykroyd. Oh, Dan you Aykroyd. heard you saw something real scary up there. You want to see something really scary? Really scary? And then he puts in a tape that's playing the song from the beginning. that was playing in the car at the beginning of the... <sighs> like, the movie goes out on top. Like, we've been through a lot in this movie but they did save the best for last oh for sure this the structure saves it at the end yeah you know you do leave with like a okay you got me there at the end you know um so i think we rate i think we're gonna rate this the same way yeah it's i mean the best segment is the fourth one yeah then the third one then then the first two would be would be the one with the kid in the cartoons yeah and then the uh uh moro one yes and then finally the the Steven Spielberg one, but uh, having sort of knowing that he just shat it out, it actually kind of makes me like it a little more. It's just like let's just get this done in the can. I'm gone. Leave me alone. I'm like okay. I respect it a little bit more. <laughs> you know, like you're not going to get my full attention for this shit show of a movie. Here's a pile of crap. Bye. Yeah. No question, though, that George Miller saved this movie. Like, yeah, uh, he like, you know, like Spielberg bunts. The other guys are hitting like one base and George Miller comes in and is like, get the hell out of here. Wow. Home run. At yeah. the end. You know, like he absolutely, you know, puts this movie over the top and, and saves it. Um, so all told, do you feel like, you know, everything else aside is Twilight Zone worth watching? The second half, for sure. I think it's worth watching. I think it... it, Yeah. It's kind of... These anthology movies, there aren't that many. You know, there's like Creep Show. Um, I can't even think of any other ones. Mm. I know there's more. Newer ones. uh, Those... uh, Oh, those VHS movies. Those are fun. Have you ever seen those? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, those are good. There's a whole series of them. They're like the same deal, different horror directors. It's called VHS. VHS. Yeah, there's probably like three or four of them. Uh, and the, the VHS two, VHS ninety four. So is that like nineties themed VHS? It's it's made modern times, but themed as a nineties one. Yeah, and the uh, okay. the conceit is that people are finding these VHS tapes with different horrific things on them. You know. Um, but they, uh, they can okay. really be pretty good. Those are good ones. 
but yeah, like you said, there's not too many anthology movies out there. Yeah, and and I think it's if there weren't this dark cloud over it, it I would unequivocally be like, yeah, this this is fun. It's kind of good you know, 80s fun, right? Just sitting there watching the Vic Morrow stuff and being like, man, this guy doesn't know that this is it, you know? And it's just hard to watch for me. Um, but the I would just say, go ahead, watch the second half of the movie, call it a day, you know, watch the opening, and then watch the final two segments, and you're, you're going to have a good time. It'll take you about an hour. Yeah, and, it's not a long movie. I mean, even if you yeah. watch it beginning to end, each of the segments, with the exception of the Spielberg one, they move. You know, they, they well, that one drags, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, yeah. And like the the first segment ends almost sooner than I was ready for. Like, is oh, oh, okay, it's over. We're on to Sunnydale. Um, yeah, it, it does move all right. I wasn't bored, and other than the the Spielberg segment, but yeah. It's certainly worth watching The Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Yes, absolutely. How about you? Yeah, same. Um, I, I, I definitely feel like, you know, the lesser known directors at the time, Joe Dante and George Miller, like really showed up, <laughs> you know, they showed up to play. And uh, and I think, yeah, because there's like, here's a chance to make our name for ourselves. I'm directing alongside I don't what Atlantis done at this point. Atlantis um, was pretty well known at this point. Animal House, yeah, but, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and then but you're directing alongside Spielberg, who has the biggest movie of all time, the the sort of um at this point number Cameron one Cameron at that point. Top you know? of his game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um so yeah, I would I would definitely say that this was worth watching, you know. Historically interesting film, I think, in the scope of Spielberg's filmography interesting i wouldn't watch it for spielberg because it's clearly not the reason to watch this movie but i think that it is uh, still interesting and at certain points actually good so yeah to to great even like the last segment is great it is um creep show is on peacock i'm gonna have to watch that oh, i love creep show man creep show is really good i especially i'm a big leslie nielsen fan so anything with leslie nielsen i'm like oh, i'm in um so what do we even his bad things? What do we got coming up next? Oh, the Temple of Doom, my friend. The Temple of Doom. So we're going back to Indy, uh, our first sequel. I'm I'm and excited for it. I I I actually am too because I'm wondering if I'm gonna like it more than Raiders. This is a lot of because, people's favorite. You know, like yeah. a lot of people. This is their Indiana Jones movie. I'm, Whereas I I'm not those it. people, but. Ignoring Crystal Skull, I always ranked it before we started this podcast. Last Crusade is number one. Again, ignoring Crystal Skull because it's the worst. Uh, then I would say Raiders and then Doom. But I'm wondering, having watched Raiders and not really being that into it, if I'm going to find this one more enjoyable. Yeah, I, I also am interested in how my rankings are going to play out like at the end. Um yeah, I'll I'll save that conversation for next week. But there are some things I think that have been brought into perspective by watching these earlier movies that I think might kind of tilt my perception of Temple of Doom when we do watch it. So, uh, but man, I I don't know if I can get past Willie. Well, I do hate some Willie, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's been a lot of talk about Short Round sort of being the replacement for yeah. Indy. You know, like it it makes the most sense. Um, 
Well, he's and in I that think it's a good Michelle way to Yeoh redeem movie. the character. Yeah, and uh, that that actor has really come like splashing back into the spotlight in the last six months or so with that movie, or that even recently with the everything all at once. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, like he's he's really so. Uh, it could be good. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. He was an Encino man. Oh yeah, he was an Encino man. I love Encino man. Anyway, uh, I guess that's it for us. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter. He's at Eric underscore Hotter. I'm at Podcast by Jeff. Uh, you can check out GamingNexus.com for all your video game needs and reviews. Um, what else? Uh, You're the movie Draft House. Yes, which is another movie podcast. If you if there aren't enough in the world. Um, and uh, it's definitely worth your time if you like anger. Um, well, uh, Budget Arcade, free-to-play games, and indie game reviews in a podcast form. I guess that's it. I'm done. Are you done? I'm, I'm done. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Check for, out the uh, links for all the... Disc- that I, well, that we'll just... Yeah, you close. You're better at this than me. <laughs> we'll see you next week for Temple of Doom. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>